Hi, this is Into the Greenwood. I'm Kathy. And I'm Rosie, and today we're looking at a shorter story called Why Everyone Should Be Able to Tell a Story. So it's quite a short tale. Um, so our discussion ended up meandering a lot and being quite broad. Um, but eventually we pulled it back to the story. Yeah. And this week, because of the difficulty of researching a story with that title, um, and because the story, the version that we had, is not in the public domain, we opted to just paraphrase this week. We hope you enjoy. So this is a story about a man from Uist who's travelling home um, and he comes to the Isle of Skye and looks for a house that he can stay the night. So the host takes him in and he feeds him and he gives him shelter um, and tells him lots of stories for entertainment. And But when the Uistman is asked to tell a story himself, he says he doesn't know any and the host tells him that that's weird and that he should know a story because he should have he should have heard lots of stories um but the US man says that he can't remember any at all so um so they pass time with the host the host telling stories and then it's time to go to bed so the US man is given a kind of cupboard um to sleep in which has a carcass of a sheep inside it and um, I don't know how that tally that tallies with sort of hospitality rules, but um, I guess we're <laughs> we're taking it. We're taking the the sheep cupboard. So he's he's lying there in bed and he's not been there long when the door opens and these two guys come in and they try to steal the sheep and they grab it and they're off with it and the used man kind of thinks, well. It would be pretty bad if um, my host thought that I had stolen the sheep carcass. So he chases after them. But then they notice that he's chasing after him. I don't know why he didn't anticipate this, but they notice he's chasing them. <laughs> and then they start to chase him instead because he's gonna tell people that they're thieves. So they decide they better just kill him, I guess. Um, so... <laughs> So the Usman runs away from them again and he keeps running until he finds a river and so he jumps in the river like in a panic and the stream carries him away and he thinks he's going to drown but he grabs onto a branch and the men are kind of like going up and down the river looking for him and throwing stones into the river but miraculously they don't find him um, and he's so afraid that he just stays there all through the night even though it's freezing and frosty and then when dawn comes, he finds that he can't get out of the river and he's trying and he can't shout and he can't move. And then finally he manage, manages one shout and he leaps and then he wakes up and he's on the floor beside his bed and he's holding tightly onto his, his blankets. And 
The story goes then immediately to tell us that his host had been casting spells on him during the night. And at breakfast, the host says, Well, I'm sure that wherever you are tonight, you'll have a story to tell, though you hadn't one last night. And the tale finishes off telling us that that's what happened to the man who couldn't tell a story. Everyone should be able to tell a tale or a story to, to pass the night. And there we go. <laughs> and there we go. To properly begin, uh, we'll, we'll start with the scale. Um, so, I was thinking along the lines of spells being cast on things. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's the inspiration behind the scale. So from the magical sulky skin to the Kelpie's mm. bridal, where does this story fall for you? Small fairy woman chanting spells over a cauldron. Because her name's Wapiti Sturry kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. area. <laughs> okay. Yep. Perfectly reasonable. For for logical and sensical reasons. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's a great addition yeah. to the scale. Yeah. <laughs> um. um and we all understood exactly what that meant. So <laughs> Yeah. So I guess before we get into Um, talking about the story, I wanted to just give a brief summary of the life of the author. Mm -hmm. And also kind of say that um, it was really hard to research to see about about different versions of this story because, um, because of the title, because the title is why everyone should be able to tell a story. So that's really hard to, to search. We really have no idea where it's come from other than, like, we know that it was written down by Dr. John Lauren Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, um, and we know that he was a folklore collector, but we just don't really, just don't know whether, like, he he just, this was, like, made up by him or if it had had some, like, precedent or if he just wrote it down not without like doing a lot more in-depth research than we practically can <laughs> so yeah um yeah so just a a brief summary of the life of the guy that either authored it or wrote it down so um dr john lauren campbell of canna was born on the 1st of october 1906 and died on the 25th of april 1996. He was a Gaelic scholar, a folklorist, and a folk song collector, and he was born into the landed family of the Campbells of Inverneil. He was inspired to learn Gaelic when he was 16, and he overheard a group of young men speaking at the Oban Games. So he then studied agriculture at Oxford in 1926, um, but he attended weekly Gaelic classes so that he could learn Gaelic, and then he later went to live on Oban at the invitation of Compton Mackenzie to learn a more kind of colloquial Gaelic because he wanted to be able to speak it the way he had heard it um, from the young men at the, at the games. Um, so then, so he learned that more colloquial Gaelic from John McPherson. Um, and then once he was confident in the language, he started recording the songs and stories of the people of Barra. 
and then with Crompton Mackenzie, he founded the Sea League, which um, had the goal of protecting the interests and the livelihoods of Hebridean fishermen. Uh, he got married to Margaret Fayshaw in 1935, and then they kind of went on to com combine their talents and their intellects on kind of various folklore projects. Um, in 1938, they bought the Isle of Canna, where they lived in Canna House, and together they built an archive of over 1,500 songs and stories, as well as numerous photographs and films. And some consider this collection to be the finest archive in private hands in the Highlands. Um, and he kind of turned the island into a nature reserve before nature reserves were a thing. And um, he kind of encouraged wildlife on the island and con and conserved its antiquities. And then in 1981, um, the Campbells gave the Isle of Canna to the National Trust for Scotland and continued to reside in the house. So just, I don't know, cool guy, cool life. Very nice. And with that, we're on to the story itself, which I'm sure we have lots and lots to say about. <laughs> Mostly kind of I think really just distills down into one main theme which yeah. I think will be the main theme of our discussion based on our pre-recording conversation of yeah. hospitality uh, being important <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so I suppose yeah one thing that particularly strikes me and that you also mentioned yourself is sheep carcass <laughs> um, and also just the fact that the the homeowner because we've there's no implication that he's like a laird or anybody important yeah not yeah. only has magic, is very willing to curse people to have a terrible night for something <laughs> yeah. that to us seems like a fairly minor social faux pas. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I would suggest that the homeowner is in serious breach of hospitality. To at least mm -hmm. the degree that the man of the tale is by not being able to share a story. Yeah. Um, there's, both of them are in serious breach of the unspoken contract going on here. Yeah. It did, it did feel a lot like... Um, it, was, it kind of felt like not being able to tell a story... Is such a huge moral failing. It's like, well, you better be able to tell a story, otherwise, quite reasonably, your host might cast a spell on you, and you would you'll, you'll just have a, like an awful time of it. Um, so, this is um, this is the official petition, not against people casting spells on people, but against not being able to tell a story. Yeah, absolutely. Um... It's just a fascinating difference in value that happens over time. Um, we're 
like, social standards have changed so much um, that probably people hearing and and us telling the story even we think hmm, it's quite an unreasonable and excessive response to just a man who's tired uh, from walking all day to then curse him to not have a decent night um, but because I was trying to think about this and do some reading about and I know you were as well about the general culture and context around storytelling mm-hmm. and I suppose I was thinking about it of if you really you know put yourself back into the shoes of the people living in those times you don't have music you don't have books potentially you don't have podcasts you don't have tv shows yeah your amount of stimulus and new information and also time to just be more relaxed and receiving input from someone else instead of generating input is actually entirely skewed like i would say at the moment culturally we are used to receiving an awful lot more than we're used to generating and that's very much only because of the internet access that we all have but if you didn't have that it's way more important for people to actually pull their weight socially and contribute um, and especially if you're not actually expected to pay at all because it's not an in you get to just stay in yeah. these people's houses for free the mm-hmm. bare minimum you can do is fulfill the social contract and have a story um, yeah add something meaningful and memorable to the lives of the people who are supporting you yeah and you can see that it you can imagine that it would be hugely disappointing to have a guest who is traveling from the mainland Mm. he's been on a long journey he doesn't even live on your island and he has nothing interesting to tell you (laughs) yeah that would be such a disappointment especially i mean we have no idea the tale doesn't tell us but imagine if there's children in that house and the whole point is like oh yeah we have an open door policy so the children can learn and experience and be excited about the outside world and this man is like "Mm, nope i'm gonna eat your food and sleep and that's it i'm not going to try and give you anything back at all Um, yeah no news no story no fun Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the curse starts to sound just ever so slightly more warranted. Yeah. And it... It does, um, it does kind of come across as if... The host feels like he's done this man a favour. <laughs> he's like, I've saved you from being the rudest guest <laughs> imaginable. <laughs> People will like you now because of me. (laughs) You're in my debt. Uh, 
even more than you were before. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that then opens up the whole um, incredibly fascinating topic around just the acceptance of magic and superstition that all of these stories run on. Because like you said, the narration itself just immediately says, oh, the host was casting spells on him. I mean, okay. Why is that within the story? Clearly the first and only explanation instead of just a nightmare or something like that. I mean, I know it's because it's a moral tale. But yeah. it's just fascinating the, that immediately lying on the floor by his bed, this man is like, I know what's happened. I've been cursed mm-hmm. because I couldn't tell the story last night. And, you know, I guess that's fair enough. I'm still going to go and have breakfast with these people like normal in the morning. <laughs> it's just astounding. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of it kind of builds on the idea of what a, what a social faux pas he made because it's like it immediately logically follows that he couldn't tell a story therefore this thing that happened to him must be related to the fact he couldn't tell a story mm-hmm. he knows he knows what he did <laughs> okay so now might be a good time to read a little passage from uh the book the fairy faith in celtic countries um do you have the author's name to hand? Because I don't. Cool. Um, w.Y. Evans Wentz. Okay. Um, so this book just has a passage in it that kind of describes the experience of um, being in these kind of communities and experiencing the storytelling. So we just thought it would be, it would be a nice thing to read. Um... So it goes, and then it is during the long winter that the crofters and fisher folk congregate night after night in a different neighbor's house to tell about fairies and ghosts and to repeat all those old legends so dear to the heart of the Celt. Perhaps everyone present has heard the same story or legend a hundred times, yet it is always listened to and told as though it were the latest bulletin of some great world-stirring event. Over those little islands, so far away to the north, out on the edge of the world, in wintertime darkness settles down at four o'clock, or even earlier, and the islanders hurry through with their dinner of fish and oat bread, so as not to miss hearing the first story. When the company has gathered from far and near, pipes are refilled and lit, and the peat is heaped up, for the storytelling is not likely to end before midnight. The house is roomy and clean, if only with its bright peat fire in the middle of the floor. There are many present, men and women, boys and girls. All the women are seated and most of the men. Girls are crouched between the knees of fathers or brothers or friends, while boys are perched wherever, boy-like, they can climb. The houseman is twisting twigs of heather into ropes to hold down thatch. A neighbour crofter is twining quicken root into cords to tie cows, while another is plaiting bent grass into baskets to hold meal. The housewife is spinning, a daughter is carding, another daughter is teasing, while a third daughter, supposed to be working, is away in the background conversing in low whispers with the son of a neighbouring crofter. Neighbour wives and neighbour daughters are knitting, sewing or embroidering. Then when the bad weather for fishing has been fully discussed by the men and the latest gossip by the women, 
and the foolish talk of the youths and maidens in the corners is finished. The one who occupies the chair of honour in the midst of the Cayley looks around to be sure that everyone is comfortable and ready. And as his first story begins, even the babes by instinct cease their noise and crying, and young and old bend forward eagerly to hear every word. It does not matter if some of the boys and girls do topple over asleep, or even some of the older folk, as the hour gets late. The tales meet no interruption in their even, unbroken flow. And there we go. So, it just kind of, I feel like that really sets the scene of an island community that has storytelling at the very centre. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it helps get across the idea of why it's so important and it's such a huge part of the community and it's something that everyone looks forward to. Um, your duties and your responsibilities to your social group are a lot higher than what we commonly think of them as being now when we're a lot more individualistic in our understanding of yeah. social bonds. Yeah. And it's clearly, the way it's described there, it's kind of like a little snapshot of the entire life of this community. Um, it's like you get kind of like some of the social relationships and some of the gender mm -hmm. roles and like what um, what kind of crafts occupy them, what repairs they have to make, what, what their houses are made of. Um, and it's all happening at this at this gathering, which is referred to as a Kaylee because um, I haven't looked deep into this, but basically Kayleys used to have more of a a storytelling aspect to them, or like they, that used to be what they were about, whereas now it's a it's a dance event. You hear a lot about how. Um modern day society is very fragmented and lonely and I do wonder if some of that is to do with this breakdown of the ability to tell stories and even have a specific place in mind for community storytelling that's yeah. just part of normal day-to-day -day life. There are some things I find frustrating um, that I think it's part of it's part of this because this is like very very specific but um when people talk about raising children it's just that we would never before have been expected to be able like parents would never before have been expected to be able to balance doing everything for their children and working and this and that because people lived a lot more in communities where like if you were busy someone else is watching the kids and like it was a lot more of a community effort I think even in like very like ancient Celtic societies there was mm -hmm. even a lot less of a feeling of even like parenthood because kids were kind of pushed around households so much like, it, there wasn't as strong an attachment to your particular biological parents. And, like, 
further on that, there's kind of, like, I know nothing about this. I'm not a parent, so um, grain of salt. But, like, I see some things recently that's kind of encouraging people to breastfeed for, like, quite long amounts of time, like, well into well into the kid being a toddler. Um, and the thing is, in the past, you might well have been able to do that, but it wouldn't be up to the individual woman to have to breastfeed for that long because someone else would just breastfeed your child if she if she was able to at that time you know like it wouldn't be down to the individual to be able to like produce breast milk for that long and it, it just kind of all reminds me of how that feeling of community and shared living and shared responsibility for for growing your community is kind of gone nowadays yeah, and I think it is something you notice a lot when you start to consider raising children and having a family, um, because that's a lot, it requires a lot of time and energy to take care of people and to form strong, close relationships, um, and I do think that the lack of community that we have is a serious issue and I wonder if that's also some of why people are so keen to revisit folklore and folk tales and why we always come back to myths where people find their true love or rescue their children or form a family and it's always within a larger community as well you always become the king and the queen or at least um kind of are key members of the village because you saved it from a monster or something there's always this implication of social bonds out with the immediate people in the tale and i think it's something a lot of people are lacking at least subconsciously, if not consciously. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, I think, I think as culture becomes a lot more global, um, people are kind of searching for ways to feel connected to um, where they where they grew up or mm. their that sense of community that is unique to the place that they're from or maybe where their their parents are from or their ancestors are from because it, it is about identity and feeling this kind of shared understanding of the world around you and there's definitely I mean, maybe it's just me because I like folk stories, but I definitely feel a kind of panic because it feels like um, quite suddenly in the relative timeline of human history, quite suddenly, we've just stopped telling these stories as yes. like part of our day-to-day -day lives. Yes, and I think 
even necessarily not just that we've stopped telling them, but we've stopped telling them in new ways. Um, so you don't have the local variant that you know because it's the one that your grandmother knows from her grandmother from all the way back. Mm-hmm. Now we have Cinderella from Disney's studios back in the 50s, I think it is. And that's just the one Cinderella story that everyone has, that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have yeah. this local flavour that gives so much connection. Um, I think we've talked about this briefly before, that some of the function of folklore is also to define in and out groups. And that doesn't have to be in the really malicious way that's sometimes used. But simply to say, this is my local culture and local area and part of my identity and my home. And that's your stuff. And we can both appreciate the differences but those differences are there and they're real and that's partly expressed in our stories. Yeah. yeah. It's also... It also makes me think of... I think part of some of the struggle that these stories have in enduring is how quickly everything changed in the 20th century. Mm. Um because, you know, for hundreds of years, um, you could, like, displace someone in time to the life of their son or the life of their great-grandfather, and everything would be recognisable and very, very similar. The tools were the same, maybe sometimes more, slightly more advanced, but still recognisable. Like, life changed for the average person very little for so much of our history so it's like these tales would not have felt like they were that old-fashioned they would have had recognizable elements and if they didn't they would have been extremely easy to adapt to the world that they were being told in but all of a sudden in the 20th century life changes so rapidly for the everyday person and all of a sudden these tales feel like they're set um, much longer ago than they probably ever did feel before and you can't just immediately adapt them be- to be set in modern times because so much has changed like they're just they're just not as flexible as they would have been before and it's mm-hmm. kind of you know I mean some I mean I I like that they I like that they're kind of set in the past you know it's like this window into another world like I find it enjoyable but um before they would have felt a lot more immediate a lot more relevant and a lot more present and now every single one of them is very much tied to the past mm-hmm. yes I think it's all kinds of interesting and also quite sad and maybe even concerning how out of touch with our history and with nature and how the vast majority of humanity have lived and quite possibly still do live 
uh, outside of the West. Um, we're very, very displaced geographically. Um, I remember reading an article um, about someone who uh, had moved to just a different part of the country in the UK. And even just, they put the effort into um, recognizing the bird calls, uh, learning which species of bird it was, and learning about the local wildflowers nearby, just to give them some sense of roots and connection with the world around them. And I think we underestimate how much not having that affects us psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, if it doesn't feel like you have a home, yeah. then you're just quite lost. Yeah. Yeah, I remember they were talking about this on the podcast from the, um, I think it's the Irish Folklore Society, and uh, I'm not confident in how I, I'm going to pronounce the name of the podcast, but I think it's Blurini Belladish, it's something like that, because um, it's, in, it's in Irish. Mm -hmm. uh, not the podcast, just the name. <laughs> um, but I just, I, they were talking about it on that, the kind of notion that, um, we've sort of lost nowadays the kind of uniqueness and the sort of homegrownness of everything around us in the sense that, you know, previously your house would be made from the wood of the nearby trees and, mm. or like, you know, the nearby clay that would be thatched from heather that grew on a nearby hill, like, the stones would have been, like, taken from nearby, in some sense, you know, like, there's, um, random anecdote, but I think it's, like, a lot of the, it's something like, sorry, this is a documentary I watched a few days ago, a lot of the, um, mm -hmm. Bronze Age weapons, the copper comes from a specific place in Ireland, something like that, so th there's obviously, like, there's trading, it's not all like super localized, but um, just this idea that um, everything around you felt extremely grounded and it felt like you could really easily trace its source to the finished product, like it was very localized and different building styles would like crop up in different places, different fashions, different, different preferences and all of that definitely it has this sense of being extremely extremely grounding mm. but not so anymore yes and i think you see it uh, this this has been a huge tangent but I, and it doesn't crop up in this tale but other tales where they talk about you know my father's sword or shield or whatever it would presumably again still be made from local materials, so it's more than that. It's maybe maybe a lower tier version of this idea of the divine right of kings. It's this symbol of 
power and connection and to a sense control over the natural world around you. You're part of it. It affects you and you affect it. So much of the way that we understand the world and ourselves and each other is belonging through stories because it's about It's about showing what you value and what you believe are heroic and appropriate ways to go about trying to obtain whatever that value is, generally security and happiness um, for you and your community, which are good goals, I think, universally. Um, but I think these tales lose their power when they lose the local flavour of them as well, because they just become entirely removed archetypes instead of at least an archetype that looks like you and is from your area. Yeah, it's um, sort of like um, criticisms of... Um like, I think Joseph Campbell's monomyth um, in The Hero's Journey. Mm. Um, criticisms of that uh, style of analysis, what they tend to focus on is the idea that, firstly, like, the description of The Hero's Journey is extremely broad and you can, you can make a lot of things fit into it. Um, but what people don't like about it is that it completely ignores the importance that the events of the story would have uniquely to the people of the culture that are telling the story. Mm. And they would not necessarily put the same importance on those events as like you would if you try to put it into the hero's journey structure. Um, so that's kind of a, a popular criticism of that that I've seen is that um, it's very um, it doesn't particularly care about the local flavor of the stories. It doesn't particularly care about um, what the unique individual elements would have meant to the people that are telling them. And I think it's something actually that we struggle with a lot. Um... I think most people don't like the idea that there are stories that are just not really for them. But in a way, the purpose of a local story is that it's not... It's not made for the people that are not from that community. It can be shared with them when they're travelling. And if they want to hear about it and learn about it and join that community. Mm-hmm. But it's not just available and on show for them in the way that stories are nowadays um yeah you would have needed to be connected with the good storyteller who was willing to tell you it it would have been a relational gift instead of something Mm -hmm. that you just pay however much amount of money to go to the cinema or to have a netflix subscription or yeah everything that's come out of modern story analysis. I saw this joke post on the internet that was sort of like saying 
I don't care if the stories that people tell on, on this website are not true. Um, like, that's not the point. We're just all telling tall tales to entertain each other. And, you know, when the guy, I think what it specifically said, I wish I could credit this, but I can't. <laughs> what it specifically said was something like, if the, if the man in the, like, fish shop tells you that he caught a fish that was this big, you don't ask him for a source, you just, um, the spirit of it was, you just enjoy, like, the story of the fish that was this big, mm-hmm. um, so, and I feel like that, um, yeah, it kind of, to me, it was like, yeah, that kind of, it gets at people's kind of desire for, for this kind of connection, but it's also, I think, you know, people hate when people lie on the internet, and I think what that scenario kind of points out is that if it's a tall tale that's from our community, we're a lot more accepting of it being exaggerated and maybe knowing that it's not true. Like, we're a lot more accepting of getting to share it, getting to share the story, um, even if it's even if we maybe know that it's exaggerated or um, can't be fact checked, mm-hmm. that's that's a lot more okay when it's face to face and it's the spoken word, and it's in our community. Um, mm-hmm. A lot less okay when someone tells an anecdote online and people decide that they're lying about it. <laughs> yes, and I wonder if some of it again using your example, if. You think probably the fish, it wasn't really that big. But he's a nice guy, he's good fun. Tomorrow you can tell him that you saw a deer that was just this huge. And he's going to say, yeah, wow, that's amazing. Did I tell you about the fish that I caught last week? It's going to be another relational thing. There's a natural give and take. You're both kind of telling tall tales to pass the time and have some fun. You both probably know about that. There's also, there's there's also the aspect where, um, people, we take things, we're much more likely to believe, believe things and take them at face value if they're written down. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's that aspect of the spoken story being a tall tale and being unbelievable that is somehow a lot more forgivable and feels like a lot less of a betrayal if we then find out it's not true. The point of a story isn't so much exactly which words were said, but it was the way that they described the feeling or added to the moment and the way that the story made you feel and then the next time you tell the story to someone else you'll have to come up with your own words you probably won't remember it exactly yeah that's not the case if you're reading it and if you can track down exactly the same passage and you can just read it word for word to the next person or just send the book to them um, it gives it makes each word very different levels of importance because there might be a particular phrase from the story that you remember. Mm-hmm. Maybe the 
the high point or the resolution. But lots of it will be your own. You'll have once upon a time and then and they ended happily ever after. The rest of that in the middle is all you. We touched on this with uh, when we were talking about Tamlin, I think, mm. where um, telling a story, it can also be... I think we talked about this um, with the um, water bill and the Kelpie story as well. Um, we're telling a story in which certain things happen to the characters. It can be a way to get something off your chest about something something that you're processing, mm-hmm. something that you're trying to work through without having to directly divulge anything. And that happens as, you know, as people add their own personal flair to the story they're telling. And it also, if pe- when people do that, it does make the story a lot more compelling and real because there's that grain of truth in it. Hmm. So I've just, to... <laughs> This has just come to me as we're discussing and to try and pull us back to the tale at yeah. the very beginning we were supposed to be analysing. Um, <laughs> so, is even the fact that he's not willing to tell a story an even bigger sign of this? Uh, by which I mean, if he is not able even to express himself, let bits of his personality shine through. He's basically asking people to put him up for the night without even being willing to give them a chance to hear some kind of a character witness and exploration from him. They Mm. know nothing about him, and even less if he's not willing to share the way that he thinks, the way that he speaks, uh, a particular take on a story. You would learn a lot from someone based on the story that they tell, the way that it ends, the way that they engage with the audience. It would be a really good reference for if they were someone you could trust to stay in your house for a night or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I imagine with the real skill of storytelling probably being a lot more common then, mm-hmm. um, it would be insane if you couldn't if you couldn't even just spin something that had happened to you on your journey if you couldn't even just spin that into a fun story that would be insane <laughs> i also wanted to note that it's kind of fun that there's sort of this conceit where because we're now reading/hearing slash this story that means that the man went on and told the story <laughs> yes absolutely Um, it means that it worked and that's so interesting yeah that opens up all kinds of interesting questions of who actually tells the story because we would assume that it's the man but also it doesn't say Mm -hmm. that he got home safe so it could technically be the homeowner slash sorcerer to Uh someone else yeah, they could be saying, um, well, this is why everyone should be able to tell a story, otherwise I personally will curse you. <laughs> I will personally make sure that you can if you refuse to engage. <laughs> no need to thank me. Um, yeah. 
Hey, maybe... I, I like to think that the next person that came to stay with to stay with him, he told them this story and they were they were like, Well, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Well, um funny you would uh, end the story there. I've just remembered something I definitely could tell you. Um Yeah. <laughs> so on kind of reading this story for the first time, um as well as the aspect of like the culture of storytelling, I also wanted to research hospitality culture in Scotland, um, which proved really really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I just thought it would be an easy topic to research, and it really wasn't. There was like what I found was a cursory Google search gets you. The first few results are very clickbaity, like 10 Scottish traditions you won't believe. And after that, it just goes into the hospitality industry during COVID. And I tried, I tried getting Google to omit things like industry and hotels and restaurants and still no luck. What I did find was all over the place, there's vague um, references to hospitality being really important in Scotland and Scottish people being very hospitable Mm -hmm. with no kind of suggestion of how how that's known or why why that's thought or anything just just a general vibe (laughs) um but I did find I suppose I found one mention about Celtic society in general um which kind of said it specifically valued hospitality in terms of protection and hosts were expected to provide shelter, food, um, as well as particularly ensuring that no harm came to guests under their care. Which, you know, technically no, no harm comes to our guy, but... But I feel like our host in this story is on thin ice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So definitely a change there from from this extremely broad take about Celtic culture. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought there's like a there's a couple of pretty infamous um, events in Scottish history that hinge on the idea of breaking the rules of hospitality um, which I thought we could briefly discuss just because they kind of illustrate they kind of illustrate how important it seemed to be um, which is kind of is the case most places in the world but um, yeah so the massacre of Glencoe um, this is the really famous source of the feud between the McDonald's and the Campbells. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, gen- a basic summary of this is uh, on February the 13th, 1692, soldiers under the command of Archibald Campbell had been hosted amicably by the McDonald's of Glencoe for over a week. And it was then that the soldiers received orders to kill the McDonald's. And they did. They just suddenly attacked them and they killed the chief, 33 men, two women and two children. And 
I think what is notable is that this event, it's not really infamous because of the massacre itself, it's infamous because of the betrayal. Because that came off the back of the McDonald's feeding them, giving them shelter for a week, and then suddenly they they broke that kind of pact. I think if it weren't for that, this you know, there's been a lot of death, a lot of murder, a lot of wars all throughout history. And I think it's arguable that what makes this infamous is the fact that there was that breaking of the kind of trust between guest and host and the fact that they let them into their home and looked after them before they did that. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that there's so many uh, mythological examples as well of this same idea mm -hmm. of either a guest killing the host or the host killing a guest being really more significant violations of social etiquette than just a murder or an assault or whatever would have been mm. it's yeah the the bond of it being after breaking bread together is yeah it makes it feel a lot more like a betrayal so i have another example of this kind of thing um so the black dinner this is the event that apparently the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones is based off, mm -hmm. or inspired by, because they're, they're quite different, but apparently this event inspired the, the Red Wedding. Um, so two boys of the Douglas family, um, which was the most powerful noble dynasty at the time, were invited to have dinner um, at Edinburgh Castle. And the elder boy was only 16 and he'd recently become head of the entire Douglas family. And his younger brother was the next in line. Um, while they were there having dinner at Edinburgh Castle, they were seized, accused of treason and executed. So the best contemporary source um, is an account in the Auchinleck Chronicle. Um, and it doesn't really give much detail at all, but very quickly after there's there's more accounts where the story has been like really embellished upon, and it's claiming that the brother the brothers were dining with the boy king James the second himself at the time when the regent mm -hmm. placed a bull's head, which is a symbol of execution of traitors, on the table in front of them, and then they were kind of put on kind of like a mock trial sort of just for show, and then beheaded on Castle Hill. Um, so it kind of got dramatised later on. Um, we don't know if any of that's true, we just, all we kind of know is that they went for dinner, were seized, accused of treason, and executed. And it's sort of thought that it seems likely that the boy's uncle might have plotted the betrayal with the regent in order to secure an alliance between them, and also once the boys were both dead, that uncle inherited the vast Douglas lands and fortune and everything. So, um, so it's kind of it's kind of the article that I was reading. It said that the story has kind of remained really infamous in part because of the familial betrayal and the youth of the victims, but also this 
breach of trust be- between guest and host. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It um, makes me think a bit of the princes in the tower as well. Yeah. From yeah, very similar. Yeah. And it, it does kind of show how, with the kind of embellishing on this one, it kind of shows how the notion of that particular betrayal really captures the public imagination, I guess. Yeah. Yes, and also, like you said, the um, the victims being very young. Um, yeah. Obviously, inappropriately, people don't like to hear about children having yes. a bad time. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and it's like... And I have one more kind of example of this mm-hmm. strong sense of hospitality thing. Um, you know, and it's like all of these, it's like they're they're not super related to our story, but it's really the best I can do as far as like hospitality culture in Scotland. So yeah. um, so there's this, this is reported in multiple different newspapers that, well, I say newspapers, you know, like online, online newspaper site news site type things um it's reported that there's a law in scott's law that says that you're legally obliged to let someone into your house if they need to use the toilet um yeah but um on on the scotsman they report that that's a myth the scottish Mm -hmm. law commission says there was no evidence to support this and that the myth may have grown around local custom and point to Scottish people's strong sense of hospitality. Mm. So, yeah, completely, completely a myth. You're not legally obliged to let someone into your house to use the toilet. <laughs> but lots of people believe that that's the case in Scotland and lots of, uh, lots of websites and lots of news websites are reporting that that's the case. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, it just goes to show how quickly uh, like urban legends can spread and quickly people will assume that they're true and from reputable sources. Um, it's not. Things being repeated many times does not make them more true. Um, yeah, and you get this kind of loop where um, they're all probably s- sourcing each other. And it seems only one of them thought to ask the Scottish Law Commission. Yeah. It's so funny to me that someone went to the trouble of asking the Scottish Law Commission. I think that's a great thing. It's just very funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I guess that's kind of another, another example of, like, how... Scottish culture very broadly relates to the idea of hospitality. Yes. Um, because it would have been really, really hard to research this topic otherwise. I'm sure the information is out there, but the internet didn't want to, want to give it to me, and I don't no. have access to books, so... No, the internet, if you uh, Google anything about hospitality, is very concerned about the hospitality industry right now. Um, Yeah. So we ran into the same problem. There we go. I think it's 
So I do think it's interesting that um, it, it does kind of emphasise in our story that um, the host bewitching the guest is not the transgression. Like, compared to these examples, obviously these are more egregious than just bewitching, but it's yes. like, no, fair enough. Fair enough. He was right. He should have bewitched him because this guy couldn't tell a story. Yeah. You might even argue, if you want to, that he's being merciful in just bewitching him a little bit. Because he doesn't... It's not a great night. It's nighttime experience, but it's not awful. It, it could have been a much meaner experience. And it prevents yeah. him being guilty of the same mistake in another person's house. So, um... Maybe this, uh, magic man was, um, just being a trickster mental. He was really helping mm. the guy out all along. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what we can take away from this is if this man had gone on to a house with a less benevolent host and had simply mm -hmm. been murdered, that would have been okay because he <laughs> couldn't tell a story. <laughs> couldn't tell a story, so he deserved what he got. Um, he's just lucky he met a nice man um, lucky he met a nice witch man <laughs> yeah not the take that I thought we were going to end with um, but yeah I, I mean obviously this man who can't tell a story is the worst so he, he's clearly just so bad um, <laughs> yeah he got off too lightly I think actually sharing the room with a sheep carcass for a little while um, <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Ko-fi page, which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.